You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Money. What does the Bible say about it? We recognize our need for it to live and function in the world, but how should we manage it? Maybe a better question is, are we managing it? Or is money mastering us? As Christians, we recognize how we view or manage money cannot save us. Even our most generous acts cannot save us. Christ alone saves us through the most lavish generosity of all time, where he laid down his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Though our charity and how we manage money cannot save us, it speaks to how much we understand the generosity of God giving us his son so we can be reconciled to him for eternity. Therefore, money becomes an excellent diagnostic tool to identify where our heart is, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. My name is Brad. Uh, like Hunter said, I'm the guy who's changing his email this week. So if you're looking for me, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, basically anything uh, that she mentioned, just let me know and I'll try to help you out and uh, find what you need, whether that's man camp, baptism, whatever. Also men's coffee. It's kind of a mystery if it's going to happen or not, right? Since it's April Fool's Day. Maybe it's happening. Maybe it's not. Maybe I am teaching through First Peter. Maybe I'm not. It, it, it could all be a big joke, but uh, you should definitely show up to find out if it is or not. I'm just kidding. It is actually happening. Please come. <laughs> Register first, though, so we know you're coming. So you just saw in the video, and Ian mentioned it, we're wrapping up our money series. We've been spending four weeks talking about uh, money. We recognize that it is something that Jesus talked a lot about. We recognize that it's something that we feel like our church family could grow in in our understanding of money and greed and generosity. And so we decided to take a break from Exodus to address this. And so uh, we're going to conclude that series this morning, which uh, I'm excited for, not to conclude it. I'm excited to preach. But before we do that, let me pray and open this up in a word of prayer. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, your church. God, you've uh, established a people, a group of people um, universally, globally, around the world, uh, who you've called into your family, but then locally here uh, in, in congregations around our city and, and area in this specific congregation. God, thank you for establishing GCC. Jesus, we recognize that you're the chief shepherd of this church, and you will lead and guide and provide for us. Um, God, as we, as we wrap up kind of this series on uh, money and, and look at the more practical side of things of how we actually go about giving uh, and being generous. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts to, to change, to, to grow, uh, to make decisions about how we uh, live and how we submit to, to your lordship in all of our lives. I pray that you'd speak through me. God, that ultimately you would be exalted, your name would be glorified in Jesus, you would be made the hero through uh, our time here together this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had good intentions that you didn't necessarily follow through on? No? Yeah, me neither. Um, no, all the time, all the time, good intentions that don't always necessarily follow through on. A few years ago, uh, on one of mine and Rick's infamous hunting slash hiking trips, this was before I was working at GCC, I shared with Rick on the long drive over to Eastern Oregon uh, that Jenna and I, my wife and I, were, were having some struggles in marriage. She had expressed a frustration with me that I wasn't pursuing her uh, emotionally or in the ways that she necessarily wanted me to pursue her. And so I shared this with Rick. I was like, I don't know what to do. Help me be a better husband. And so throughout the course of our time in the woods, we came up with some ideas uh, for me to 
better pursue my wife in the ways that she desired to be pursued. And some of the ideas we came up with, I think are really good ones. Some of them straight out of like a, a rom-com. These are Rick's ideas. He's, he's the romantic of the two of us. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> he said, uh, take a deck of cards and write a date night idea on every single one of the cards. And there's 52 weeks in a year. There's 52 cards in a deck. Every week you flip over a card and you have a date uh, you can do. I was like, that's a great idea. Uh, one of the other things Jenna uh, had expressed was a desire to be more adventurous, to do more fun things together that... Um, you know, our weekends weren't spent watching Netflix and uh, doing house projects and those kinds of things. And so I was going to come up with six kind of bigger, more adventurous ideas, put those in a jar, and then every other month we'd draw something out of the jar and do this big adventure together. Came back from the trip, and I was like, this is great. I'm going to do this thing. And so I came up with 52 date night ideas, wrote them on a deck of cards, came up with the adventures, put those in a jar. And you can ask Jenna uh, if we did any of them, and the answer would be no. <laughs> uh, we got all the way up to crunch time of like, okay, let's actually follow through with this, and I didn't follow through. Now, you could say I had good intentions. Uh, maybe you might say it's the thought that counts. The thought was there, right? But if you asked Jenna if she felt any more pursued uh, by my good intentions, she would probably say no. Right? She didn't actually, there was no actual action taken or pursuit. It's a thought that went from the thought. And so did the thought actually count? Or is the thought, it's a thought that counts just kind of a phrase we use to excuse our laziness and lack of action. Uh, like I said, we've been doing this money series. Week one, Rick talked about how money is a great diagnostic tool to expose the idols of our heart. How the, sometimes the best way to see what our heart treasures and, and what's going on inside of our heart is by actually taking a look at our bank statements. And then the second week, he, week he talked about grace leading to generosity and compared the two stories, one of the rich young ruler and the other of Zacchaeus and how both of them come face to face with Jesus and his grace respond in different ways and how the response of generosity from Zacchaeus is the way that we as Christians should respond to God's grace. And then last week, so if, if, if money is a diagnostic tool into our hearts, if the grace of God should lead us to generosity and giving, and Ronnie addressed last week, what are we giving to? Or who are we giving to? Where, as Christians, does our money go? And he talked last week about how the primary recipient of the Christian's generous giving should be the local church. That it is God's primary means of making the gospel go forth throughout all of creation and advancing his glory to the ends of the earth. The primary way he's going to do that is through the ministry of the local church. And the, the, this ministry is funded by the saints, the Christians that call that church their home and are taking on that responsibility to fund its gospel ministry. And now if, after all of that, and I've had conversations with many of you just as we've been going through this series, after all of that, you're feeling conviction that maybe uh, greed is an issue in your heart, or that maybe you do have a desire to make some changes to your generosity or how you handle your finances. Maybe you have good intentions to do something about you, the way you spend money or use money or manage money or give money. I would say, don't stop at good intentions. Uh, you can have as many good intentions as you want, but when it comes to repentance, when it comes to sanctification, good intentions aren't all that we're after. Jesus is, is after all of who we are, not just our thoughts and, and what we think about things, not just our desires and, and what we want, but also what we do, how we live our lives. Jesus wants to be Lord over everything, including the day-to-day -day decisions we make in our lives and including how we spend our money. 
So I hope the, the, the goal of this morning's sermon is that we take those good intentions to do something differently and actually make a decision that leads to action that produces some kind of change in our hearts and lives. Again, my, my good intentions of pursuing Jenna didn't mean that I actually pursued her. And so if you have good intentions of repenting from greed in your life, good intentions in, by itself is not repentance. Repentance is turning from sin and towards Jesus through obedience. And so this morning, we're going to be hopefully answering the question of how. How do we give? It's going to be kind of a more practical sermon in that after all that has been said so far, how do we respond to some kind of action, some kind of change? What does the Bible say about how we go about generosity, how we go about giving? What kind of action needs to be taken? And to, to answer that question simply, and then we'll walk through it, uh, Ian said it earlier. The main point, if there's a main point of this sermon, is give like Jesus. How do we give like Jesus? We give like Jesus gave to us. And we'll have three kind of sub points and we'll work through these. We give willingly, generously, and intentionally. We give willingly, generously, and intentionally. To see these, we're going to be in two texts, 2 Corinthians 9 and then 1 Corinthians 16. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll start there. 2 Corinthians Chapters 8 through 9, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church and the topic of giving. There's a lot of instruction for us in it. We're going to look at verses 6 through 12. I'm going to read all of it, and then we'll jump back to the top and work through it. So this is 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed, your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So our first point, point number one, is we give willingly. Look back at verses six and seven. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul is addressing the Corinthians and saying that he's going to come and take a collection from them to help supply the needs of saints in another region. He, earlier in chapter 8, uses an example of the Macedonians, which we'll look at here in a second, to say, look how they give, now you do the same. Gather a collection, give, so that we can supply the needs of the saints. And he makes a point over and over and over again throughout this section that he doesn't want this giving to be reluctant. He doesn't want it to be done out of compulsion but he wants it to be done willingly and cheerfully. And this willing giving is because it's rooted in our understanding of how much we've been given. He goes on to say, verse eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. What he's, what he's trying to all to see here is that God has given us everything. You have sufficiency in all things at all times. God has abounded in giving you grace and you have everything. All of your needs have been supplied by God. 
I think we forget this often, but we have to understand that everything we have is a gift of God's. From the physical and the material, things like our life and breath, the blood that's flowing through our veins, our brains that are working and firing, the food on our tables, the roofs over our heads, the money in our account, the ability to work, to earn the money that is in our account. Everything we have is a gift from God. And if we fail to see that, then we're going to hold tightly to the things we have because we think that we somehow are owed them or that we have earned them or deserve them. But it's all a gift. And not just the physical and material things we have as being a gift from God, but also spiritual things. Ephesians 2 verses 3 through 14 gives us this list of the eternal inheritance that we have from God in Christ. I'm just going to read it. It's an incredible passage of scripture. Pay attention to all the things we have in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, all the things we have in Christ, all of these spiritual blessings, holiness, blamelessness, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, knowledge of God, union with him, reconciliation with one another, salvation, And all of these are sealed, protected eternally by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. And none of this, none of it we have earned and none of it we deserve. So until we understand the magnitude of God's generosity towards us in Christ, until we do that, our giving won't be willing or cheerful. But when we understand just how undeserving we are and yet how God has lavished his grace on us in both material and spiritual blessings, our giving then becomes willing because it's a giving out of thanksgiving. I read one author who who says this, there are three kinds of giving, grudge giving, duty giving, and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving says, giving says I have to, duty giving says I ought to, and thanksgiving says I want to. I'll borrow an illustration from John Piper. Imagine that I brought flowers home to my wife, Jenna, and when she asked me, oh, why the flowers? I responded by saying, well, I'm your husband, It's my duty to do things like this for you. And so I figured on my way home, I should probably pick up some flowers and give them to you. How's that going to go over? (laughs) She's not going to be too thrilled about that. If instead I said, if she asked, why did you give me the flowers? I said, because I love you, because you're my bride, because I adore you, because I wanted to find some kind of way to express and show my love and commitment and thankfulness to you. I got you flowers. It's way different. It's the same gift but the motivation and the intention and the attitude in giving it is far different. And so church family, I would ask, do you love Jesus? That might seem like a silly question, but, but do, you, do you understand the tremendous gift that you have been given in Christ? Do you adore him for what he has done for you? Then with thanksgiving, 
we give willingly, cheerfully to the glory of God. So first we give willingly. Second, generously. Uh, One of the most common questions when it comes to giving is the simple one, how much? And just tell me, give me a number, give me a percent, make this easy for me and tell me how much I am supposed to give. And there's all kinds of answers to this question. One of the most common ones that comes up in the church is this number 10%. Uh, 10% number comes from an Old Testament concept. The word tithe just means 10%. And it was the, the tithe was part of an Old Testament, the Old Covenant with God's people, the Israelites, where they were commanded to give a 10% offering to the Lord of all of their possessions. Now there's debate on whether or not this tithe is still applicable to us today in the New Testament. Uh, and you can, you can think either way on that. At, at GCC, we would say that the tithe is, we're not bound to a tithe as New Covenant Christians. That was an Old Covenant command. And what we are bound to in the New Testament in our giving is generosity. There's no number or percent given in the New Testament about how we should give, but there is a description that is generous and sacrificial. I mentioned the the Macedonians earlier. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the Macedonians giving, and he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The command of to give in the New Testament is a command to give above and beyond. The word generous just kind of simply means above and beyond or more than would be expected of you. It was expected that the Macedonians would give according to their means. And they were in extreme poverty, so that wouldn't have been much. But no, they gave generously beyond their means in ways that didn't actually make sense. It was more than you would have expected of them. Now, this is the kind of generosity, the kind of giving that New Testament saints, Christians are called to. A giving above and beyond more than what would be expected. And I'll say this, generosity should hurt a little bit. And what I mean by that is you should feel it. It should feel like a sacrifice. Giving beyond what is expected of you, giving generously is going to change something in you. You're going to feel that. It's going to push up against idols. It's going to push up against your desires. Sacrificial giving is when your giving affects your living. And so what kind of things can you not do because of what you're giving? What kind of luxuries in life do you have to give up because of the generosity that you're showing? Now, again, there's no number or percent. This could look different for everyone, but we would say as a general rule for most American Christians, 10% is a starting place. It's a good starting place. I think we should view 10% as the floor to our generosity and not the ceiling. And for many of us, it will take much more than 10% before our giving would actually be considered generous. For many of us, 10% feels like a drop in the bucket and we won't know that it's gone. For others, that could be less. And to, to, to put some kind of limits on this so that we're not giving ourselves away into poverty, there's other biblical, biblical commands of what we're supposed to do with our money that we should follow. Obey the government, pay your taxes, care for the needs of your family, your own physical needs and the needs of your family. The Bible says it's wise to save for the future. God's provision for you in the future is your work and income now. And so it's wise to save for the future. And so if you're giving so much that you can't pay your taxes, you can't care for your basic needs, and you're not wisely saving for the future, then maybe you're giving too much. But I think if we're honest, that's probably not what most of us in here are struggling with today. I don't think we have to sit down and have many conversations with pastors about someone who's worried they're giving too much. It's more on the flip side. 
I think most of us are struggling with what does it look like to be generous? And am I giving enough for this to be considered generous and sacrificial? So we give willingly, we give generously, and then lastly, we give intentionally. If you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians, want to quickly flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We get some more instructions on how to give. 1 Corinthians 16, just the first two verses, one and two. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Our giving should be intentional. And by intentional, I mean planned and regular. And I think we see this in this text. Verse two, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Notice there's no qualifications or exclusions or exceptions to each of you. It does not say on the first day of every week, each of you, except those of you who are poor, except those of you who are in debt, except those of you who are saving for vacation, except those of you who uh, are a college student, except those of you who have a lot of kids. There's no exceptions or exclusions here, but rather each of you is expected to, in some way, put something aside. And you put something aside and store it up, that phrase there, as he may prosper, means that the amount is not random. It's not spontaneous. It's uh, in proportion to your income. And so as he may prosper, the way we can understand is in proportion to your income. There is a planned amount, a thoughtful amount, an amount that's been prayed through that makes sense in proportion to your income. And as your income increases or decreases or changes or ebbs and flows, so does the giving. I would say as your income increases, not only should the dollar amount that you give increase, but also the percentage increase as well. We learned that we saw that in the second Corinthians passage that you will be enriched so that you can be generous. The more you have, the more of it you can give away and give back to the Lord. And so it should be planned. It's not random. It should be a, a systematic nature to our giving. We plan it out. We sit down to make a budget. We put some thought into it. And then also, not just planned, but regular. Here the command is once a week. I don't think that's necessarily something we need to be bound to. Uh, but depending on how your income comes in, maybe it is once a week. First day of the week on a Sunday, you set something aside. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's quarterly. Uh, maybe you work in some kind of contracting, and so the checks are irregular, so it's every time you get a paycheck. The point is the irregularity to it. Because here's the thing, and here's the, the reality of it. If we don't give systematically, if we don't give intentionally, then we most likely won't give willingly or generously. If we are giving spontaneously in response to emotional pleas from pastors or, or emotional pleas from commercials on TV, what's the one with McLaughlin, the dog one? Right. You guys tracking with me? Uh, I'm not going to sing it, but I think the words are in the arms of an angel. Okay, if we, if we give spontaneously, randomly, uh, emotionally, every once in a while, those gifts are not going to be willing gifts. They're going to be gifts coerced in some way out of us, or maybe it's, man, it's been a long time since I've dropped anything in that bucket. And so the guilt builds up enough, and then we give. That's not willing giving. And if you're not planning out your giving, you're most likely not going to accidentally be generous. When you get to the end of a period of time and you look back at an unplanned string of giving, it's not going to be like, wow, I gave so much. You're probably going to look at that and be like, wow, I did not give near as much as I thought I did. George Mueller uh, wrote this. It, it poses a question. Are you giving systematically to the Lord's work or are you leaving it to feeling, to impression made upon you through particular circumstances or to striking appeals? 
If we don't give from principle systematically, we shall find that our one brief life is gone before we're aware of it, and that in return, we have done little for that adorable one who bought us with his precious blood and to whom belongs all we have and are. This shouldn't surprise us. This is true of anything in life. You want to change your diet and you don't have a plan, you're going to get three months into your new diet and look back and realize it's not any different than it was before you start. You want to build a house? <laughs> you're going to need some kind of plans, some kind of system set up to, to carry through with that project. Any kind of discipline in life, anything we want to accomplish in life is going to happen through some kind of systematic planning and the truest same with giving. I would say giving is a discipline and so our approach to it needs to be a disciplined one, one that is intentional, one that is planned, one that is regular. Now I'll state the obvious, this isn't easy. If it was easy, we wouldn't preach a, ser a sermon series on this. Nevertheless, here we are. And so right now, you might even be feeling some pushback to me in your heart. That's okay. I'm expecting that. There might be some resistance. And right now, you might have a list of justifications in your mind as to why you're not going to do the things that uh, Scripture is telling us to do. I'm expecting that. I think we all do that. In response to that, I want us to consider three forces that are working against us when it comes to giving and generosity. Paul identifies these three forces as the world, the flat, our flesh, and the devil. The world is not doing us any favors in generosity or in giving away our finances. Uh, in 2022, $780 billion, with a B, dollars were spent on advertising. So $780 billion were spent around the world to get you to spend money. Like we spent $780 billion so that people would spend money. So advertising is. And the vast majority of these ads trying to get you to spend money, trying to get us to spend money, are telling us a message that you should spend your money on yourself, on your comfort, on your security, on the things you can control, on your future, on pleasure. You earned your money. It's yours. Spend it on yourself for the things that you want. You've earned it. You've deserved it. That's the message of the world. There's a, I don't know, it's a story or a short little illustration where an older fish uh, swims by a younger fish and asks the younger fish, how's the water? And the younger fish says, the what? The idea is that you're so immersed in something that you don't even know what you're in. He had no idea he was in water because that's just what he's used to his whole life. I think that's kind of how the world works for us in regards to money. We're so immersed in a, this arduous lifestyle and culture where materialism and possessions are, are valued in such a way that we don't even know. We don't even realize kind of the, the cultural soup and water that we're swimming in. Say, how's, how's greed? What? Because we're just so used to what the world tells us we should spend our money on. So that's working against us. Second thing is our flesh. Our flesh is that sinful part of us that still desires to rebel against God and do sinful things. Our natural tendency is greed. The natural state of our heart is to take and say mine. That's naturally where we are going to land. So our sinful desires, our flesh is going to push against any kind of generosity because we're going to say, no, this is me. This is mine. It's my world, my life. We put ourselves on the throne of our life and then our money serves to satisfy our wants and needs because we're king of our life. And then lastly, the devil. Have you ever stopped to consider that the enemy doesn't want you to give? And if you do, he'd prefer you be stingy about it. And he would prefer this for two reasons. One, your heart, 
and to the work of the church. So your heart, he knows just as well as Jesus does that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Either you will love one and hate the other or vice versa. And so the more you are mastered by money, the more we are mastered by money, the less we are mastered by Jesus, which is a good thing for him. Satan can never take you away from the hands of the Father. You are eternally, securely bound in a loving, united relationship with God. That will never change. And he knows that. But he can thwart and make ineffective the ministry of the gospel in your life and in the life of the church through all kinds of means. And I think one of his primary means of doing that in America is not sexual immorality. It's not progressive Christianity. It's not politics. It's greed. I think greed is his primary tactic in making ineffective the work of the gospel because of what it does to our hearts. And then on the other end, he would prefer it if GCC didn't make budget. He would prefer it if gospel preaching churches around the world had to close their doors for lack of funding. That works well for his mission and his kingdom and his desires. So I, I don't, I'm not trying to mm, like scare us into like fearing Satan or anything like that. That's not the point here. I just think that when we have pushback to, in our hearts, when we have pushback to responding with obedience to what Jesus is calling to, we need to identify where that pushback is coming from. And Paul identifies that as in Ephesians as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so let's understand what those are and their motivations for keeping us from the kind of generosity scripture would call us to. Now, these are powerful forces that are working against us, but Christ has overcome each one of these. And so that they, they have no control over us. Heavenly, eternal. Jesus has overcome the world and he's established a heavenly eternal kingdom that we are citizens of. This world is not our home. We are exiles, foreigners, strangers in a world that is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of a kingdom with upside down values. We do not have to submit to the values of the world around us because this is not our home. We're called to an eternal perspective with an eternal kingdom with eternal values, not temporary ones. Jesus has overcome our sinful flesh by taking it on himself. Like Ian was saying earlier, Jesus walked a perfect life, never an ounce of greed, perfectly generous, perfectly relating to money and to possessions and to giving and sacrificing. And then he went to the cross, though sinless, and took our sin upon himself. So that every time we have been greedy, every time we have held things back, every time we have lacked generosity, every time we've used money to abuse people or hurt people, every time we've used it to abuse and hurt ourselves, all of that placed on Jesus on the cross and he died for it. He buried it in the grave and he left it there. And when he rose from the grave, all those who are united to Christ in faith are resurrected with him to new life. So now when God looks at you, he doesn't see sinful flesh. He doesn't see sinful desires. He doesn't see greed and a lack of generosity. He sees the perfect generosity of Jesus. That is your identity. That cannot be changed because you didn't earn it. It's given to you freely by God's grace. And now we have a responsibility to walk in that new identity, to live that out, to put off the old and put on this new identity that we've been given and walk in obedience to it. And so your sinful flesh has no hold on you. You can say no to the desires of the flesh because of the spirit of God that is within you, reshaping your desires to, to ones that reflect Christ. And lastly, Satan has been defeated. He's fighting a losing battle. The war has been won. When Jesus got out of that tomb, Satan's power, it's, it's useless. And he, he runs around and he still wreaks havoc on things. But at the end of the day, Christian, you, you, that power has no hold over you. 
So you can say no to the temptations of the enemy because your king, your master, your Lord is Jesus Christ for now and eternity. So whatever pushback you might be feeling, Christ has overcome those forces. And so we can submit to him as Lord and be obedient. And he's done this. He's overcome these things by giving, by giving himself. I said at the beginning, the main point of this, how do we give? Give like Jesus. Jesus gave willingly, generously, and intentionally. In John 10, 18, Jesus tells us that no one takes his life. He gives it. He lays it down. Jesus did not go to the cross begrudgingly. He did not, no one drug him to the cross, kicking and screaming. He went willingly. And Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that he endured the cross for joy set before him. So Jesus went willingly and joyfully and cheerfully to the cross for you. He gave himself willingly. He gave himself generously as well. If generosity is giving above what we are expected, what would you expect a holy creator God to give a sinful, rebellious creation? Nothing. Like zero is what we would expect. Death is what we would expect. And yet here we are, breathing, alive. And not just alive and breathing, but secured in Christ for eternity to never die. God has given us above and beyond far greater than what we would ever expect a holy God to give sinful people. On the cross, Jesus did not pour out 10% of his blood. On the cross, Jesus did not give up 8% of his life. He did not give partially of himself or hold some back because he's like, nah, I think they're going to take this gift for granted and mismanage it. So I'm not going to give it all. I'm going to hold some back. Jesus gave generously all of himself, 100%. And what we get is not partial forgiveness, partial justification, partial redemption or reconciliation, but 100%, totally, completely totally adopted into his family, totally forgiven of our sin, totally justified before the father, totally redeemed. And lastly, intentionally, Jesus was not responding to a a spontaneous emotional plea from humanity that tugged on his heartstrings enough that he said, okay, yeah, sure. I'll go to the cross. This wasn't my plan, but now that I'm here, I might as well. Acts 2.23 tells us that it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God before the beginning of time, to send Jesus to die on the cross. God's plan for all of time and before time began has been to rescue his sinful creation through a sacrificial, generous gift of his son. Not only was it planned, but it's regular. It wasn't a once and then that's all we get from Jesus is one time, but it's ongoing. We are recipients of God's grace in Christ every single hour, every single minute of every single day. He has saved us. He is saving us and he will save us. It's ongoing. Second Corinthians eight, nine says this, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich at the end of his life on the cross. Jesus, the King of the world, King of Kings and Lord of Lords had nothing. And in return, you get everything. And so then everything you have is not yours to begin with. So we can give like Jesus, willingly, generously, intentionally, joyfully. So here's my challenge. I said this was more practical, and this is going to be about as practical as it gets. Thing is, though, theology is always practical. If our theology, if we fully grasp it, about the gospel, if it stops in our head or if it stops in our heart and never makes it to our hands, we haven't fully grasped it. So here's what I want your hands to do. Remember, when it comes to repentance, when it comes to sanctification, the thought doesn't count. Christ purchased us with his blood to transform us, all of us, not just our good intentions. So here's my challenge. Here's what I would love if all of our church family did today. 
sometime after church. Sit down. If you're single, by yourself, maybe with roommates. If you're married with your spouse, your family, read Ephesians 1 together. That list of spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Read through it and pray. And thank God for all you have in Christ. And then write out a budget that prioritizes giving. Planned regular giving. Start, here's my challenge. Start with 10% of your income. If that means that you cannot put food on the table for your children, then adjust accordingly. We're not asking you to go into poverty. But if that feels like nothing, also adjust accordingly. And then, and here's probably going to be the hardest part, share your budget with someone else. In almost every area of sanctification and growth in Christianity, we let other people in on it to hold us accountable. Sexual purity or our alcohol use or our parenting, our marriage, uh, our anger problem. We say, speak into my life, correct me, tell me what you think, hold me accountable. And then when we talk about money, we hold it close to our, our, our chest and say, this is my personal business. I don't think that's the way we should do it. So after you've done writing, after you're done writing your budget, find someone you trust in your GC group. It can be one of our one of the pastors. It could be a roommate, whatever it might be, and say, "Here, full disclosure. Here, here's what I'm planning to give. Do you think that this is generous based off of my lifestyle, what I make, my season of life? Tell me what you think." Second Corinthians eight seven. We'll conclude with this. It says, "But as you excel in everything." This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. He's talking about giving also. So GCC, we're a, a growing church that is growing in our understanding of the gospel. It's growing in our love for Jesus. It's growing in our love for one another. And there are so many ways that we as a church are excelling. And it is exciting and a joy to watch. So as we continue to excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in our love for one another, we believe it is time that we also excel in this, in this act of grace, of giving and generosity. We're not going to do it alone. We're going to have to do it together, and we're not going to do it until we recognize and understand all that we've been given in Christ. There's no amount of money you could ever give that would make God love you more, and there's no amount of greed you could ever have that would make God love you less. You have the fullness of his love and approval in you because of what Christ has done on your, on, on your behalf. That list of blessings in Ephesians 1, that is yours. And no one or nothing can ever take that away. But because that is yours and no one or nothing can ever take it away, you have the freedom. We have the freedom to give. To give what we've been given back to the one who gave it to us in the first place. Let's pray. God, thank you for lavishing on us, according to your grace, so many gifts so many blessings, so many things that we have not earned and do not deserve. God, what would be expected of you to give to us would be nothing. And yet here we have, here we sit with everything. It's only because of what you've done for Christ, through Christ, which you've made and how you've made that possible for us through his life, death, and resurrection. So God, I pray that our church family, that each and every one of us as individuals and together as a community would start to grow and excel in this act of grace. That you would grow us as a church that stewards our finances well, and that out of thanksgiving and thankfulness to who you are and what you've done for us, we're generous with our time, with our money, with our lives, our energy. God, I pray that you would not let us stop at good intentions, that you would help us all to make decisions today to repent, to change, to take action, to actually do something about the things that you're calling us to. I pray this in Jesus' name.